Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Thank you, Kirsty. And I'd like to welcome Joe up to come and and speak to us. Hello. (laughs) I'm sure most of you know know her, but Joe is... uh, a member at St. Matthew's here, and last time she spoke, I found her absolutely inspirational. I did. I did. <laughs> Can I just pray for you, Joe? Lovely. Father, we again pray for your inspiration, for your Holy Spirit, for Joe, for your blessing on her and on us as we listen to her. Father, open our hearts and our eyes that we may see Jesus. Amen. I must admit, when Pat's texted me the details of this passage, I thought, flipping heck, I can't preach on that. It's huge. There there are 17 different sermons in this passage alone. There is so much. You could study it for years and still not get to the bottom of it. So I've decided to try and cram all 17 sermons into one. (laughs) Um, Dad, this is not going to be a sermon that lasts 10 minutes. Sorry. It's my dad. Say hello, Dad. Just to embarrass him, he used to do it to me. It's nice to get my own back. Um, so, my plan of attack for this is I'm going to be quite, quite chron- 
crum, crum, difficult, and do it backwards. My husband says I do this quite a lot, but I'm going to approach the entire passage backwards. So I'll start at the end and work my way to the beginning. Now, as a good historian, I'm a history teacher, there'll be school-based references, sorry. Um, A little bit of context. Paul, Peter's letter, I will keep calling him Paul, I'm sorry, it's Peter. Peter's letter is all about suffering. It's very cheerful. It's all about encouraging us Christians in suffering, how to live, how to cope with it, to expect it, it's going to come. But it's, it's a really inspiring book. And then suddenly in chapter three, he goes in a slightly different direction. He spends the first bit of it talking about wives and husbands. Um, and it's basically saying, wives, don't worry about the makeup. Um, let your actions and your inner beauty shine through. Husbands... <laughs> you need to respect your wives. Now, I am absolutely convinced that this means, husbands, you need to bring your wives a cup of tea in bed every single morning. <laughs> Putting that out there, that's the challenge. It's biblical. Um, so, and then we get to this humongous, meaty, giant steak of a passage. Now, the most amazing difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is that, as Christians, we don't need to run ourselves ragged, jumping through hoops um, to try and please God. We don't need to be offering burnt and burnt goats and various other burnt offerings because, oh, because of Jesus' amazing sacrifice. We don't need to work for our salvation. There is nothing, absolutely nothing we can ever do that is going to make God love us any less. And there is absolutely nothing we can ever do that's going to make him love us any more. It's mind-blowingly amazing. And in all honesty, you could sleep through the rest of it, but take away that. God loves us to complete capacity. It's not going to leak. It's not going to drain away like a battery. He's at full capacity of how much he loves us. It's just awesome. Um, I'm going to say awesome a lot, and I'm very sorry. But, and this passage is one that really shows that through. In verse 22, it says that Jesus sat at the right hand of the fathers. Angels, all authorities were in submission to him. They bowed down to him, the son of the king. And yet he chose to give it all up. He chose to give it all up, to come to earth, to be born a baby in a stinky little stable with sheep and goats and I keep talking about goats, but I don't know why. Goats um, in a stinky little stable. All of heaven bowed down to him and he chose to come to earth and live. He voluntarily chose to take all of our sin upon himself. Our sin, it's every time we lie, whether it's a huge lie or a teeny little white lie, like I told my husband that I haven't got, anyway, a whole birthday thing. Every little lie from the huge ones to the little ones. I'm sorry, Colin, I'm going to keep picking on you my husband he's very cute um total tangent whether it's um all of our selfishness it's like i don't want to do that i can't be bothered i'll do this instead i would much rather sit on the sofa and watch the good wife whatever all of our disobedience to his commands he says don't steal and we may not go out and steal cars and break into people's houses but tea bags from work i frequently do printing in fact No, no, I printed this sermon at home, but little things from work. It's all stealing. It's all sin. It's all piling up. It's the hate in our hearts that whether we hide it really well or we wear it on our sleeves that we don't like someone. and All of we things we do which don't give God the glory, which don't love other people as ourselves, is us going against what he's called us to do. 
It's a harsh reality. And personally, just by me, in my 33 years, I have dumped tons and tons of sin and rubbish and just in huge, ginormous sacks on his back. So have we throughout history. And we keep doing it again and again and again. We all fall short of God's glory. It doesn't matter whether we're 100. It's like a toll bridge. We can be £100 short of the toll or we can be £2 short of the toll. We're never going to hit that perfect standard that Jesus calls us to. And Jesus, coming to earth, he took all of my tons of bags of sin on his shoulders and your tons of, and throughout history, he took them all on his shoulders. He chose to take our punishment knowingly. It's not a sheep or a goat, it's him taking that. His friends abandoned him. His closest friend went, I don't even know who he is. He was, he was arrested and he was whipped And it's not just a whip that's a bit of material. It had bits of stone and rock woven into it. So it was intentionally, when it hit his back, it would rip his flesh. It's called a cat and nine tails, historical reference. And it was just, it was intended to shred his back. He was mocked by everybody around him. He was put on trial for something that isn't accurate. He was forced to carry a heavy, wooden, splintery cross on his already shredded black back for miles until someone else took it off him. When he got to the Golgotha of the hill, they rammed onto his head a crown of thorns which would have ripped through his flesh. He would have had blood pouring down his face. And then six-inch nails, which is about that much, were rammed, hammered into his hands, into his feet. And then they raised him up and gravity would have been constantly pulling against the nails in his hands and the nails in his feet. And the worst thing for him, the worst bit from him is because he was so full of our sin, he was so carrying all of our sin, yours and mine, on his shoulders, he was completely cut off from his father. His beloved, beloved father, his dearest heart, who was so pure, who was so holy, he couldn't go near him, he turned away. And Jesus cried on the cross, oh God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he did that for us. In verse 18, for Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous, him, for the unrighteous, us, to bring us to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus did this so we could come to God. He broke out of hell. He smashed death. He defeated the devil. He was the purest of sacrifices. The tons of sin which we put on him, that he voluntarily took, gone. Just gone. It includes all the future sins when we come to him in forgiveness. Verse 21, it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can come into relationship with God. His body was put to death but is alive in the spirit. And it's the same for us. This is just mind-blowingly amazing. And I know it, but then I don't know it. And I live it, but then I don't live it. And it's, it's often head knowledge, but it sometimes needs to just sink down to our hearts so we can just go, wow, what he did for us because he loves us. He went through that agony and pain because he loves us. And it's from this place of awe and wonder from this amazing sacrifice and love that we can come back to this passage and look at what Peter's calling us to do. Going backwards, 
looking at verses 13 to 17. I'm just going to read them out because they're really cool. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Don't fear their threats. Don't be frightened. That's easy to do. Fall into that one a lot. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. And do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now, we live in what Rowan Williams, ex-Archbishop of Canterbury, nicely calls a post-Christian world. Charming. We don't get burnt as garden stakes anymore under the Emperor Nero. That's nice. I'm not very good with being burnt. Um, We don't get eaten by lions. Also, a definite bonus of our modern world. But we can get mocked. We can get ridiculed. You're a Christian. We can get dismissed. Oh, just put your faith away. Ignore it. Get dismissed for having a faith. We get mocked and teased for choosing to stand by it and honouring God. We get mocked and teased for just coming to church on Sunday mornings. But Peter here is encouraging us to keep standing firm, to keep holding on to God's promises and his faithfulness. Peter insists upon a passionate love of goodness. So many times I read that passage and it's went, a passionate love of goodness. In the Bible, it's good is being is defined as no, in the dictionary even, good is being defined as being morally excellent. I'm not that. Virtuous. Definitely not that. Of high quality and excellent. No, probably not that either. Often we find being good is a real burden. I don't want to be good. I just want to sit on the sofa with a cup of tea. I just can't be bothered. Sometimes it's boring. It's like, I could do good or I could do this. Um, Sometimes we vaguely desire it, but the price of doing good is just a bit too much effort. But that would be a lovely thing to do. Now, in the NIV, it says we should be eager to do good. In earlier translations of the Bible, it says ardent lovers of goodness. Now, ardent in the Greek comes from the Greek word zealotus, which I've probably pronounced wrong. Sorry to Greek scholars over there. um, Which translates as zealot. Some of you may know that a zealot is a fanatic. William Barclay says that we should love goodness with the the impassionate intensity with which most fanatic patriots love their country. I'm not even close. I'm millions of miles in that direction going, bye. Love goodness with a passionate intensity with which the most fanatic patriot loves their country. Only when we fall in love with goodness can wrong things lose their fascination in power. If we are passionate about goodness, our obsession with the television, I have quite a bad one of those, suddenly loses its power. Our obsession with fan fiction websites on the internet, with pornography, with I don't know what you know in your life where you're at, but it suddenly loses its power. And I'm a very long way away from falling passionately in love with goodness. But I remember quite early on when I was dating Colin and I was happily falling in love with him, the way he just consumed my thoughts. Every spare moment, I would sit there thinking about Colin. And I'm sure it was the same for you, wasn't it? 
the right answer. Well done. <laughs> but if we want to be truly passionate about doing good, about being good, and we aren't there yet, it's a choice. Like with all things, it's a choice to choose it. And to put it in a very uncouth manner, fake it till you make it. If you want to be passionate about good, every morning it's, right, I'm going to be passionate about being good. I could do this, I could do this. I will choose the good one because I want to be passionate about being good. I could do this or I could do this. I choose to be passionate about doing good. Now, when I was in Mozambique, I had an amazing Catholic friend. She revolutionised my understanding of Catholics. Um, she was completely sold out for Jesus and I went over to her house one evening for a movie evening. I thought, chick flick, bit of chocolate, it's going to be amazing. And she put on a very unchick flick film about a nun, a young girl who wanted to be a nun. I must say I groaned internally. And this girl had gone into a nunnery and she really felt she wanted to God, love God and other people in very practical and very unseen ways. And she kept a diary about it. She would mop up the spills that no one even noticed there had been a spillage. She would dust in places no one would ever think to dust. She would do all the little jobs and absolutely no one noticed. Sometimes she'd get told off for being in the wrong place at the wrong time, but actually she was doing little acts of goodness that nobody ever saw. Then she died. It was all very dramatic. I did cry. Um, And eventually after her death, they found her diary and long process with the Catholic Church, she was made a saint, and her name is St. Therese. Have a look on her, probably on Wikipedia. And I must say, she's a real inspiration. If we want to follow what Peter says, inspired by the amazing sacrifice and love of Jesus, remembering, of course, that we can't actually earn his salvation, but he's been so amazing to us that we want to do it out of love. If we want to be good, just because he was, and we want to be more like him, then start with the quiet, unobtrusive goodness. It's a challenge for me. Put the mug tea, no, pour the hot water into your spouse's mug and fill up your own. So if the kettle runs out, have a full cup of tea and then you have to reboil it for yourself. This is one that challenges me some mornings. Um, picking up litter around the place. No one's there, no one can see it, it's just a crisp bag. Pick it up, find it in the bin, shove it in your pocket, take it home. Um, Small acts of goodness, and then it builds up. Ask God to open your eyes to ways in which we can do good around the place. Cups of tea for colleagues at work when they're not expecting it. You just need to leave it on their desk and leave. Um, Lifts for people without cars. Even if if it's really out of your way, just say, oh, it's no bother. And they'll just, just, it's the little acts of goodness. Clean the house when no one's looking. Hoover the house, which is covered in dog fur because he's molting and is really irritating. When no one's looking. Tiny acts of goodness. In this passage, Peter also challenges us about our attitudes to suffering. I think this is about the 17th point. Um, And there are two kinds of suffering. There's the physical suffering, death, sorrow, pain, weariness. But there's suffering because of our faith. Unpopularity. Persecution. Sacrifice for the principle of standing up for Jesus. Deliberately choosing... The different way. Now, I have some amazing friends in the village where I grew up called Doreen and Terry. And years ago, I had a dodgy summer temp job at a haulage firm. And Terry was working there as well. And he was on the phone to customers about when deliveries would be made. And I remember him saying, because I used to lift share with him, 
um, that his boss had been screaming at him. She was so angry because he was refusing to phone up a customer. Actually, I think he was on the phone to the customer and the order was delayed and she was a little bit cross. And his boss was saying, just tell her they're stuck in traffic. It's fine, just tell her that... They weren't stuck in traffic. They were unorganised and running late. And Terry refused. And he refused. And in the end, the boss snatched the phone off him and told them this lie and off they went. And Terry said to her, and this has always stayed with me, if I can lie for you, I can lie to you. If I can lie for you, I can lie to you. Such integrity, such honesty, such standing up for the gospel. Particularly in the face of a real barrage of abuse. That's very nice. Sorry, that's being mean. And we have always have situations where we're called to compromise what we believe. Some are so subtle that you don't even notice them. My old deputy head at my old school, we were due an Ofsted. It was looming. And he was building up a stack of lesson observations that we'd written so we could go, look, Ofsted, we're amazing, we do all of this. And he bought me a lesson observation I'd done of a colleague. And he said, could you just change this sentence so it fits with the Ofsted guidelines? I haven't written it. Probably wasn't even true about the lesson. But he just said change it. And I went, yeah, yeah, it's fine. And then a few days later, it was really niggling at me. Niggle, niggle, niggle. And I kept hearing what Terry said again and again in my head. So worked out what I was going to say. Went in to see him. Said, can I have the observation form back? And, um, and then I said to him happily, if I can lie for you, I can lie to you. Yeah, that didn't go down well. He thought I was accusing him of being a liar. And yes, it, yes, think before you speak. I don't. Um, but actually, I got the form back and I felt much better about it. Verse 14 says, even if we suffer for doing what is right, we're blessed. It might get us in a pickle. People might think less of us. But standing up for doing what is right is always the right thing to do. And God will bless us in ways that we can't imagine. But we shouldn't do it because he might bless us. But we should do it because we want to be honest, like Jesus, because of what Jesus has done for us. Why should we choose this separate way? Well, to believe in Jesus means to choose to live for him. It means that Jesus is supreme in his life. When we become Christians, we're choosing that Jesus is our top dog. He is what we're following. He is our first love. He comes first. If we're focused on earthly things, then we're vulnerable to them being taken away. If we're focused on our nice plasma screen TV or our really nice clothes or sometimes it's a loved one or a person, if they become our primary focus, they can get taken away. As poor Emma and Andy discovered coming back from holiday and having their house burgled and nothing left, even Andy's pants. I'm still amused by that. I'm slightly disturbed. But if they're focused on their earthly things and their possessions and their nice house and their nice big plasma screen TV, suddenly their entire world falls apart. If your total focus is your spouse and you love them before everyone else, including God, should heaven forbid something happens to them, your entire world completely crumbles. But if Jesus rules in our life, if Jesus is supreme in our life, we have total security and nothing, nothing will ever take that away from us. With Jesus comes hope, peace, joy and love, always love, consuming love, never giving up love. And I must say, I'd rather have that than a giant plasma screen TV. I know occasionally I've said about the giant plasma screen TV. I choose Jesus. Um, It's cheaper too. Um, And with that joy and peace and hope that comes from love, 
just for who we are, where we're at. Me, just me, here, standing here. It's not about what I'm wearing or what I do. He loves me for me right here, right now. He loves you for you right here, right now. And nothing's that going to ever change it. He promises us never to leave us, never to forsake us. And that's amazing. Ah, point number, I've no idea what number I'm on. In verse 15, it tells us that we should always be prepared to have an answer for this hope that we have. And I remember Paul Fulton saying last month, whenever he spoke last, about practising the gospel, practising our testimonies of how we came to faith or a story of Jesus working amazingly in our lives. Two minutes, clear, concise. Practice it with friends, practice it with your spouse, practice it in your home groups or at the start of a church service, pads, pads, pads. But actually, if you practice it, you get better because I have a spectacular case of foot in mouth. I will sit there and go, and deeply inappropriate things will come out every single time. As Tonya discovered earlier when I had a whole conversation about boobs. I've just said boobs in a sermon. Bother. Um, it's just inappropriate and it comes out. But if we've practiced it, we know what we're trying to say and it just flows. And actually, as a result, out comes the love of Jesus. And it's not about Bible bashing, waggling your Bible at them. Oops. And saying you're going to burn in hell. Unless God tells you to tell them we are going to burn in hell, in which case that's absolutely fine. But it's being gentle. It's being loving. And a story about where you're at or where you've come from is the most powerful thing because they know you. Um, tiddly on pom pom. Totally lost my place. Yes. So, the final aspect I want to talk to, we're very near the end. Yay! Right at the beginning of Peter, he does an entire series of sermons in about three verses. And they're the marks of Christianity. The marks of what a Christian should be like. I must admit, I hit pretty much none of them. But it's a work in progress, and that's very good. And I just want to very briefly talk through each of them. And where you're sat, just say, God, which one do you want me to focus on? Which one do you want me to do something about? And just see what the Holy Spirit prods you about, nudges you. What's an area he wants you to focus on? So the first one... In my Bible, it's called Living in Harmony. In your Bibles, it's... What's first? Right at the beginning of verse 8? Like-minded. Like-minded. Or as William Barclay puts, Christian unity. Living in harmony. It's not a new topic. Paul has talked about unity, living in harmony. Well, for hours. Um, you can see it in Romans 12, Romans 16. In 1 Corinthians, he talks about the church being a body and all of us different bits, but we are one body. And the church can't truly be Jesus if we're divided. Now that's a whole world of sermons when we look at the wider church, but we can start with some maths. It's not about going home and muttering, I don't know what's going on. It's about living in harmony. Get out there, do something, getting involved. Join some of the uh, mission action planning groups on discipleship or communication or other ones that I now can't remember. It's about getting involved, working together. If we don't like it, bring it along, talk about it, discuss it. But living in harmony, working together. So that's one mark. The second mark is being sympathetic. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. After mum died, um, some of the most powerful people who just came alongside me were the people who just sat with me and cried. 
and they cried with me. And they were just so sympathetic because they felt my pain. They felt our pain. And as a family, it meant so much to us. And actually, Jesus was sympathetic. Jesus stood outside Lazarus's tomb, knowing he was about to raise him from the dead, and wept. Um, so be sympathetic. Brotherly love. So often in church, I want to talk to my friends, um, because I like my friends, and they're nice. But actually, a simple test of church is do we love our fellow man, everyone, whether we know them or we don't know them, whether we have anything in common or nothing in common, just loving. What I love about Kirsty, just to embarrass you, is you just get out there and you love people. It's brilliant. It's such an example. And lots of others of you as well, just pick on Kirsty, it's fun. Um, so brotherly love. Number four, compassion. The very heart of Jesus was compassion. What he did on the cross was compassion. Number five, humility. Humility isn't sitting there going, yep, I'm rubbish, but you're great. Well done, you. Humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. It's not about me. It's actually about other people. It's loving other people before ourselves. And we're called... Yeah, never mind. Um, And the final one is forgiveness. Jesus said upon the cross with the nails and the crown of thorns and the people who put him there and the mocking and the abandonment and the agonising, excruciating pain, he said, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. Wow. He forgave. He asks us to forgive ourselves. He asks us to forgive other people. Anyone, slight niggling thing, forgive. Because that's what Jesus did. So, an amazing passage. You could preach on it for a month. But I have a couple of practical things to think about to take away with you because I'm a teacher, homework, yay. Um, Practical things to do. Firstly, think about practically doing good. Choosing to be passionate about goodness, secret goodness. Choose to be passionate about it tomorrow. Start tonight. Get out there. Be good. Be loving. Just see where the spirit is guiding you and prompting you to be good. The next one is putting down anything at the foot of the cross, which is stopping Jesus being supreme. This is huge. And so many of us have things in our life which are so important to us that they actually get in the way of Jesus, that they actually block us and Jesus and our relationship with him. But if we want him to be supreme in our lives, if we want that peace and joy and love and hope that he promises, and he never fails on a promise, It's putting at the foot of the cross and leaving there the things that get in the way. Thirdly, practice your testimonies. Home group leaders, it's a nice starter activity. But go home, think of a story, a time in your life where Jesus has just done something amazing and practice sharing it in two minutes. No more, no less. You can have a couple of seconds on either side. Practice sharing the gospel. There's a whole thing about two ways to live, which is a really concise and clear way of explaining the gospel. Practice it. Learn it. And then the final one is thinking about which mark of a Christian life you're prompted to focus on. Is there someone you need to forgive? Is there somewhere that sympathy just needs to flow out? Is there places where you need to bring unity, where you need to love your brothers actively, not just chat to your friends at the back of church or at work or wherever you are? There is so much in this passage, and I'm sorry I've gone on a little bit, but I just want to pray very quickly and then the band are going to come up and pray and I just want us to spend some time doing business with God saying to him here I am what do you want of me what can I do 
to live more like you. Thank you for what you have done. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you that your love will never, ever give up on me. Let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit, come. You have challenged us so much through this passage. Speak to us now. How do you want us to live differently? Where can we live out your love and sacrifice? Come, Holy Spirit, come.